Welcome to another episode of Focused on Christ, where we are passionate about exalting Christ and equipping the church. I'm Mike Crump here with Pastor Nathan Smith. And uh, now, Nathan, before we get into our topic today, uh, we are hearing more questions from people about just things as they're reading through the Bible on their own. Um, And one that came up uh, from a couple people was, how often did a person actually have to go to the temple to sacrifice an animal? Because it seems like as we're reading through Leviticus and some of these law books that they're just constantly because of sin doing this and i know you know sin is a constant thing ever before us and i feel like i would be at the temple like every hour with a new animal (laughs) so so how often was this happening Uh, so back in the time of the temple and the tabernacle Mm -hmm. the tabernacle was situated right in the middle of the camp of israel as they Mm -hmm. were going through the wilderness yeah but when the temple was established the tribes scattered really across the land in between, uh, you know, the, the, the name for the, the ancient land of Israel. And people would have had to plan their time to go down to Jerusalem because it would be a multiple-day journey. So the idea of the, the sacrifices, mm-hmm. you couldn't go down every single day. Oh, yeah. You couldn't go down every single week. You could only go down a couple times a year and mostly around the festivals, which brings up a really interesting practical point. People had to plan their repentance Hmm. in advance. It's interesting. They had to plan the sacrifice. They had to think about it. So imagine that if you do break the law, Mm -hmm. which, of course, everybody did, you had to plan out your, your repentance in keeping with the law. In a way, your sin stays before you and the brokenness stays before you, and then it creates an expectation of longing to get to Jerusalem and to get that taken care of and to offer the sacrifice. Sometimes in the Christian walk, I think it's easy to, we have access to the Father. Yeah. And we can go, oh, Lord, forgive me, done. And we actually don't think about Mm. our sin, our transgression. We don't plan out our repentance. Not that that is required in the sense that we've got to do something to accommodate our sin or or to take care of it. But there's a loss of a sense of reverence of what I've actually committed. Mm. So people did have to plan out their sacrifice. They gotcha. had to plan it out time in advance. They had to sit on that sacrifice and think about what's going to happen and and really dwell on what God was doing for them. That was the intent okay. behind it. That but makes sense. Does that make sense? That does make sense. And it, there would probably be a weightiness to, man, I can't wait to get to yes. the, the temple to be able to lay the sacrifice down and just kind of a longing for that work or that you know imagery of the sacrifice and the cleansing that comes from it. So... So it's God accommodating in a real world where not everybody mm. can travel there, but also the byproducts of reverence and expectation yeah. and looking towards Yom Kippur, that one time a year when you know the high priest was going to go in on your behalf. Yeah. So there was a real creation of expectancy mm. and also weight of breaking the law and having to sit with that even for a while until it could be taken care of. Mm. Amen. And uh, I think there's a waiting even now we experience, waiting for Christ to come and redeem fully that which, uh, you know, we we experience in part, but fully uh, on his return. So that's uh, another—the Christian life is full of a lot of longing. It is. And good question to our listeners and to those who are asking them. Keep asking those questions. That's That's how we understand and know the Bible. That's right. If you would like to ask a question, you can go online to our website at FocusedOnChrist.com, and there we have an— Opportunity, just click on the submit a question, and we would love to be able to use those as a, you know, a means to connect with you all. 
Well, today's question actually comes from the book of Ruth. And uh, the book of Ruth, located between Judges and 1 Samuel, um, is a small little book, but it really has a powerful story in it. And uh, Nathan, before we get into that story, what were the events of when this book took place? Like, what, what are the, what's the context here? Israel has come in. They are in the process of taking the land. So okay. Joshua is sweeping across, um, sweeping across the, the land, taking the city-states, establishing the tribes. Joshua dies, passes off the scene, but Israel still has not taken all of the land. Mm. And then we enter this period of anarchy, the book of Judges. Yeah. And the book of Judges is a horrific read. Let, let's be honest. The yeah, book of no, Judges is. is just icky. It's Is that a theological term? I think that is a theological <laughs> term. I've heard it's, that before. Yeah, It's difficult. <laughs> it, there's parts of it that are just downright nasty. Yeah, that's true. And it's hard in your devotional life going, okay, I just read about this horrible thing. How do I edify it in God's Word today? Mm. And part of it is remembering that God, even in the midst of the darkness, is still working out his plan of redemption. Mm. So in the time period of this, the judges, the anarchy, the evil of the people of Israel, we get this short, beautiful little book. Mm. Because we might be asking the question in Judges, are there anybody that really is seeking after God? Yeah. Is there anybody that really is trying to follow? And we're introduced to uh, Boaz and to Ruth. Mm. And the name of God occurs frequently through this book because they're genuine God-fearers. So Shortly after Joshua's taken the land, the period of the judges, all of this darkness, but in the midst of this darkness is this bright spot, this little book of Ruth. Amen. All right. Well, let's jump into this story, which, you know, it, a lot of people, they think of the book of Ruth. They think, you know, this is kind of the Bible's Hallmark movie, right? <laughs> it almost comes across <laughs> that way, doesn't it? Yeah, there, is, there is some sweetness in it that there is, is, is ro- romantic and, and beautiful, um, but there is something even more profound. So um, we're going to kind of walk through the book and look at some questions within the, the book and narrative itself, um, and then we're going to see how it speaks so beautifully of Jesus himself. So uh, chapter one, we have this image. Uh, there's famine in the land, Israelite family, uh, husband husband, wife, and two sons are in Moab. Um, what is the relationship between Israel and Moab at this time? I mean, what's what's going on there? And well, why would they be in, would it just be for the famine that they're in Moab? Well, the Moabites are, uh, are historic enemies of Israel. They even opposed Israel coming in, in in their wilderness wanderings. There's also a little bit of irony going on that uh, they're having to flee the promised land into the land of their enemies to find relief. Mm. Now, what is the text saying very subtly? Famine in the Old Testament was always indicative of the judgment of God. Mm. So the fact that judgment of God had descended upon the promised land because of the evil of the people, they're having to flee the promised land into the land of their enemies to find any sort of relief. Wow. And so there's a little bit of drama that this book opens with that shows the state of relations between Israel mm-hmm. and God. Okay, so they, wow, that, that's, a, I never thought about that perspective before. That is because of the judgment of God that they are having to seek outward from the land of promise. Um, so at this time, is there tension still between the Israelites and the Moabites, or has Israel just so surrendered themselves to the surrounding cultures that there's not as much tension anymore. I'm sure there is some tension, but we're not really told in Scripture of the state of the political affairs at this time. Because Israel had so apostatized, maybe they found great almost mutual kinship (laughs) in their rebellion against God. 
uh, we know that they're able to go, and we see that these men of Israel actually do take Moabite women as their wives. There yep. was some sort of congeniality that at least allowed that to happen. Gotcha. So this, this family consisting of Naomi and her husband and her two sons are there in uh, around the Moabite people, and her husband and her two sons die after they have taken wives, and now you've got these women. And there are no men around. Now, obviously, in our day and age, we go, well, you know, they can do all sorts of things, you know, freedoms and stuff. But then it was a very different context. So what did this mean for these women? They had no protection. They had no one overseeing for their welfare. They make a desperate attempt to go back to the promised land, back to the region of Bethlehem, Mm -hmm. and to try and find some protection in their tribe. Okay. Or specifically Naomi's tribe. Naomi's tribe. Uh, because they have no other protections to them. Yeah. So one of the daughters, Ruth, um, who is a Moabite, and she clings to Naomi. And there's that beautiful um, verse in in verse 16 of chapter 1 where Ruth is saying, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Uh, What is the significance of this? Because that's a pretty profound statement for her to say. The significance is not just an affection for Naomi. Mm. One of the daughters goes back, presumably to the household of her parents. For Ruth to cling to to Naomi is not just the adoption of Naomi as Mm. someone for whom she has affection. She's choosing to leave her people behind and her God's behind. Wow. She's taking on Naomi's identity in this people group, but also saying, this God, I'm also going to claim him. Mm. There is something in Naomi, a God-fearedness in Naomi to such a degree that attracted Ruth to this Yahweh. Mm. And throughout the rest of the book, uh, Ruth herself references Yahweh as her God. Mm. So we see an adoption not only of a people, of a woman, but also the identity that comes with it, specifically the God, Yahweh. Amen. And we see that this is just, again, God is for the nations, and that there is a welcoming in of Ruth into the family of God. We even see that, as, as we'll get to a little bit ago, where she even is part of the genealogy of Christ. Actually, we'll come to that at the end of this book, and we see how God draws that in. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point, however, in the book, to pay attention to the drama, we actually aren't supposed to pick up on that yet. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just I, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. I didn't, I didn't, alert. I didn't there, there say go. that. I'm so sorry. Well, well the, the, the Israelite, <laughs> no, the Israelite reading this book would have said, "What are what's going to happen with this Moabitess woman? Yeah. What what is what is going to be her destiny? What's going to be her plan? And the end of it results in such a fact that it's kind of like a wow. Yeah. It's a literally a pauper to princess um, kind of jump. In, in true Hallmark movie fashion. Yes. That's <laughs> okay. Uh, but we'll get to that in just I a moment. I see a running theme here. That's great. All right. So they come back to the town. They're back in Bethlehem. The town is stirred up because now, I mean, Naomi comes back. All of the men of her household are dead. She's coming back with a Moabite woman. And no doubt, I'm sure there was probably some confusion and uh, maybe a little bit of what in the world are you doing, Naomi, you know, happening there. Um, But then we see in chapter 2, there's this 
new character who's mentioned in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. So a couple things here. What is Ruth speaking of as, as she's speaking of going and gleaning? This was a common practice at this time, but what is that for those who may not know? We're introduced to Boaz, mm-hmm. and he's called a worthy man. If you read through the book of Judges, nobody else is called a worthy man. Mm. And this Boaz is such a God-fearer and a law-keeper that in the Old Testament law, there were stipulations that when you were gleaning your field or harvesting your field, Mm -hmm. that you were to leave some of the leftovers behind specifically for the poor. You were to allow the poor to come onto your field and to glean or to get some of the leftovers Mm -hmm. from among the main harvest. And that was a way of caring for the destitute, of caring Mm. for those who had no money. Notice this. It's also interesting in the law that the expectation was that the poor would do it themselves, that they would actually exert work and that the wealthy were going to allow some some margin for the poor to come in and exercise that work and still be maintained instead of just giving them a handout. The law is very complex or or nuanced in in what it's trying to instruct and teach. But here's Boaz, this worthy man who is keeping the law and wants to honor God so much that instead of gleaning all of it for his personal benefit, Mm. he wants to make sure that the poor are cared for. Well, here comes Naomi. Here comes Ruth. Ruth, who has nothing Mm. and has no status in the people of Israel at this point. And she is going to glean from the harvest that Boaz is purposely leaving behind for the poor. So in this part of our drama, um, they are simply looking for sustenance at this point. They're looking for, we need food to care for ourselves. This, this isn't a, you know, hey, Boaz is cute. I want to go over there. Right at, at this point, this is just a, I need to care for myself and my mother-in-law. I'm going to go and glean from the field. Which shows Ruth's uh, work ethic herself yeah. and her desire to want to do what is right and care for themselves and care for her mother-in-law. So this term of fine favor, is that more of just that he will look kindly upon Ruth and allow her to do this? I mean, is that kind of the nature there? Is there more to it? Uh, it's definitely something that Ruth does not bring anything. To find favor has the concept of grace in it. Mm-hmm. It is giving something that is undeserved. It is giving a protection, giving an allowance, giving a blessing to someone who has not even asked for it, has not done anything to demonstrate a worth or deservingness of it. He is just going to give favor and give allowance because he is of such a man of God that he is exhibiting God's character by giving grace. Okay. So in this, we see Naomi does state eventually that this man is a close relative of ours and our Redeemer. And so here we have the introduction of a new concept, is that he is a Redeemer. Now, this is not a new concept to the Scripture because we do see this in the law itself, but here in our story, he is one of our Redeemers. So what does that mean? What is a Redeemer in this context? So in the law, there were provisions for women who were widowed that they would come under the protection of the next of kin in that relationship or family. Okay. It was a protective measure in a culture where there were very few protective measures for women of any sorts in any culture. And so God wrote into the law so that they would not be destitute, but they would still have protections, provision uh, that God would provide someone who would be uh, 
basically take care of them in their widowhood and redeem them and bring them into his own family to gotcha. take care of them. There are some other intricacies and sensibilities that sometimes we in the West really struggle with this idea. Yeah. But generally the concept is bringing them into your family to take care of the person who would otherwise have no provision, no care, no opportunity for even life. Gotcha. So it's not just a sheer authoritarianism, like you're mine now. No. But it is a, I am going to care for you I'm as gonna, your head. Exactly. As, yeah, okay. I'm going to take you on and be your protector. Yeah. And be the be your head. Okay. Gotcha. Well, we get into chapter three, and things begin to get a little bit, you know, m- move towards, uh, I guess, some romanticism, but it's also kind of odd, to be honest. Um, there's a this strange plan that uh, Ruth and Naomi, really Naomi, kind of gives to Ruth, and she says, "Hey, go wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on a cloak, and then hide in the threshing floor. So when Boaz comes and he lays down to go to sleep, you like uncover his feet and lay by them." <laughs> and I don't think we can recommend that for dating no, advice. Um, no. But <laughs> do we have an idea of what this may have been, or is it just? We just don't know because of the... Well, maybe some cautions here. I have seen novels, sermons that try to play up the romanticism (laughs) here, and we are just simply not told that. uh, There's no emotions that Ruth herself expresses in terms of a romantic attraction. I think there's a mutual respect for uh, that they're both followers of God and that there's a worthiness, and we see that later on in the story. But what she is doing is she is basically going to Boaz, and by uncovering her feet, she is submitting herself, Mm. showing respect in order to make a request. Mm. In many cultures, not the West, but many cultures, the feet are the place of the the servant. Um, Even even in East Africa, the greeting is shikamo marhaba. You say that to an older person. Mm -hmm. Shikamo uh, in the Arabic, Bantu Arabic African culture is I grab your feet. Oh, wow. It's literally laying prostrate and saying, I grab your feet in respect. Mm. And marhaba means I accept. And that, that, that's just something that you do to anyone who's older than you as a sign of respect. Mm. Well, that image, now this is not a direct correlation yeah. to the Eastern yeah. culture, be clear on that, but it does have the same roots. And that is to put your feet on the neck of a conqueror was to demean them. But if you were voluntarily going to someone's feet and laying at their feet, or like the woman who anointed Jesus' feet, yeah. you're putting yourself in a posture of respect and honor to that person. Okay. So what Ruth is doing is putting herself in a posture of respect, of humility, knowing that she's asking for grace, but she's also asking for grace in accordance with the law. Mm. Boaz, will you fulfill your duty under the law, and I humbly respect for this grace. I humbly ask for this grace. And she does that by uncovering his feet and then makes her request to Boaz. Mm. I appreciate that. That's very helpful. And uh, and to, to your point of that, this isn't necessarily this romanticized picture of, you know, her, her swooning over Boaz, but her in faith, really believing that here is a faithful man who has demonstrated a faithfulness to God, I'm going to go submit myself underneath him and say, please help, and just basically depending upon his graciousness. And isn't that even so much better than romantic love? Yeah. Should not marriages and relationships, the person you marry, should it not primarily build, be built on, oh, no, hopefully there's some romantic love, let's speak yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but the foundation that secures yeah. you more than anything else is that 
Yeah, we love each other. But more importantly than that, we have a mutual affection for God. Amen. And out of that comes love. Yeah. And that's, I believe, what we see here in the story of Ruth and Boaz. And we see that in Ephesians where there's just this mutual submission one to another in the marriage relationship. Absolutely. And uh, that we are considering the other person and uh, above ourselves as we continue to serve and care for one another. So uh, that is a beautiful thought as we consider this process of redemption that is happening uh, even as we walk through this. Now, we have Boaz who agrees to do this, um, but it isn't just as simple as, okay, we're good to go. Um, he goes to the city gate. And now what's the significance of the city gate at this time? The city gate was the place of business transactions of commerce and legal business deals. And he's going to go because he realizes, he makes a statement mm-hmm. that he recognizes Ruth is a worthy woman. He's mm-hmm. a worthy man. Yeah. He recognizes she is a worthy ma- uh, woman. Yeah. They're both God followers. He's such a stickler for the law. He so badly wants to follow God that even though he recognizes the intrinsic value of Ruth, mm. he volunteers, there's actually someone who's nearer. If we're going to keep the law, there's a a man that's nearer than me. Mm. And so we have to go through that first. Yeah. So we have him continuing to just be faithful towards the law of God, which uh, just is a sign of his character. So he does go and he petitions um, the guy who was next in line and says, hey, do you want you know, this land and Naomi and Ruth that come with the land? And the guy was like, no, because that's going to mess up. What well, first I, of all, he said, sure. Well, I that, want that's the true. Land. Yeah, like, that's he, true. He said, first of all, sure. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll take it. some land. And it comes with a <laughs> widow. Uh, on second thought, no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because there are responsibilities then at that point that could mess exactly. up all sorts of things in his in his mind. So he passes it on to Boaz. And uh, and here we see, and I think this connects to what you were just saying about the feet, because then there's this, like, this exchange of sandals or something. There's a little bit of mystery about what's going on okay. because we're so far removed. I mean, you're talking this is a story, a historical event that happened 3,000 years ago. Yeah. We don't have a lot of extra biblical or even biblical evidence of what what's going sandal on with exchange the sandal. goes yeah. on. <laughs> what we do know is that it was some sort of signifying of a legal transaction, Okay, an acknowledgement uh, of some people say that, well, he's taking the land, and so he's giving up his sandal, the foot that will walk on the land, therefore lay claim to the land. Okay. And that is what is going on. Okay. It also probably has a respect of I am handing over in respect, in obedience to the law, the rights of this transaction to you. Okay. Gotcha. Well, all that to say, Boaz redeems Naomi and Ruth in this land, and he becomes and is their kinsman redeemer. Um, and this brings us to our key question. I know it's kind of at the end of our discussion here, but uh, I, we really want to spend a little bit of time here. Is like, what is a kinsman redeemer, and what does it have to do with Jesus? Now, we've kind of covered what the kinsman redeemer is, someone who is related to the person who needs to be redeemed, paying a price for that redemption, and then there's a trans- transference of care and authority that happens. And we kind of see that in Jesus, don't we? All three of those. Yes, and it's also a transference of of adoption, mm. of bringing into and under your care and headship into your family yeah. and into a relationship where there is to now be covenant love, mm. covenant affection, covenant um, mutuality of obedience to God. And what Christ does is he takes us who were outside the family, outside the, the, the promised ones of God. We're, we're, we're enemies of God, yeah. Moabites. 
He brings us in. Hmm. He brings us into his family. He makes a transaction on our behalf and then takes us on, and the New Testament even says, as the bride of Christ. Hmm. We are wedded in covenant love to our Savior through his transaction of the cross. Hmm. Now, we come to the end of this, and what is the main point of Ruth? main point of Ruth, the, the book, is showing that God is furthering his plan of redemption. And if you look at the end of verse 18 down to verse 22, there's a genealogy that is given. Mm. And it says, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. And Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Who's Nashon? Nashon, we are introduced to in the book of Joshua as the head of the tribe of Judah. Mm. He's the prince of the tribe of Judah. Okay. Now, what happens? After they take Jericho, Rahab is saved. Mm. Rahab becomes the wife of Nashon. Mm. So we have the prince of Judah, through whom the Messiah will eventually come. And the prince of Judah takes on uh, Rahab, who is a Canaanite, brings her into the family of God. She comes under the headship of Yahweh. And from this princely line... Then comes Boaz, and it says down here, Salmon, and Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz. And Boaz likewise takes on a Moabitess, and she comes into the line of the Messiah. Mm. And from Boaz comes Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Mm. So even David's story, who is the, the, the one to whom the, the Davidic covenant, that there's going to be a king who comes, yeah. and that is Jesus, that... This promise was made while bringing in the nations, Mm. while bringing in the outsider. And therefore, the very line of the Messiah itself pictures that God is bringing in the foreigner. He's bringing in the undeserving out of sheer grace and mercy and love. Mm. Amen. And so for us today, I think if we have been redeemed in Christ, there is a joy that we have been transferred from light or from darkness and into light and that we have been taken from the bondage of sin and death and given eternal life in him. And as you mentioned, you know, we were, you know, connected to Satan and now we are in the family of God and redeemed for all eternity. And what a joy that is for us to take heart and that God was even paving the way thousands of years ago in this beautiful little story in the book of Ruth. And he's going to make a plan and he's going to make a way even through the darkness of the Mm. book of Judges. God is still accomplishing his sovereign plan of drawing in the nations, bringing in redemption eventually through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, Nathan, thank you again for sharing and uh, love walking through that. If you have any questions or maybe you have specific questions about this, again, you can go to our website at focusedonchrist.com and ask those questions. Well, you can join us next time as we transition from the time of the judges to the time of kings and consider the life of King Saul. What can we learn from this tragic figure? Well, you'll have to listen next week to find out. Also, remember, you can visit us online at focusedonchrist.com where you can find more resources, include our video podcast, articles, and more. Thank you again for listening. Mm-hmm.